Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right, welcome back, everyone. Another episode of the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. So glad you could join us uh, this evening. Um, as always, Robert and Zach uh, here with yo, me. Yo, yo, yo. And, uh, yeah, kind of kicking off the new year, kind of uh, getting back into the swing of things. Um, Last time, I know we kind of talked about kind of New Year's, kind of talked about resolutions, kind of the winter slump, winter blues that people get. Um, But this episode, we're kind of switching topics, switching gears a little bit. We're diving into the book of... uh, Philemon. Yes, Philemon. because we always keep uh, saying different things, and we've said it wrong so many times, I forget how to say it right. Philemon. Yes. Philemon. Yes, um, but yeah, we're uh, diving in, and um, so yeah, Zach, Robert, won't take up any more time. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so one thing that I always like to clarify, um, when we go into Scripture, it's always important to keep in mind uh, the type of literature it is. Um, the main reason why this is important to keep in mind is because, especially with the Bible that has various different forms of literature, um, and sometimes, like such as the book of uh, Psalms, there's more poetic language, and it's more, like you could have metaphors and things like that, and sometimes people get into trouble when they read the Bible, especially in the, when they're in a book like like the Gospels or something like that, that's actually historical narrative. Mm. And if you're not careful, you'll start to approach it with an allegorical interpretation. And that is where you can get kind of like um, into some muddy waters. Mm. And so that's why I always want to keep in mind the actual kind of like historical context of what literature is this how has it been interpreted in the past and things like that that way it kind of gives us a framework that keeps us from really going off the rails so to speak it keeps us within uh safety parameters is a good way to put it would you put it that way also Robert? oh yeah yeah i would completely agree with that because um, um we talked about this a couple shows ago actually is you know if you don't have the right context I mean, you could come up with just about any story in your own head that you want to. Mm-hmm. Especially there's some words in this letter in particular that we've got to have a context for. Yes. Mm-hmm. To right. understand mm-hmm. the culture and why why does Paul, who wrote this, not what not condemn certain things. Right, right, and right. So, right. yeah, that's that's going to be the, the road that we got to go down is explaining this. <laughs> and I'll let Robert, the theological master, do it. Um but we'll go ahead and get started. Um, and one reason why we picked Philemon um, is because it's it's a simple. It's uh, you can read it in one sitting. It's only one chapter, twenty five verses, and it's easier to read something like that and get the full context of it than say 
like, for instance, the book of John or the Gospel of Luke or something like that. That's several different chapters, and if you're not careful, it can kind of, uh, you get brought in at certain places and you might miss certain details and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing, you know, we have uh, chapters and verses, but originally when this was first penned and first written, from Paul, they didn't include chapters or verses or, you know, Matthew or whoever else wrote the New Testament, all these people. They didn't include chapters or verses. That's just something that we um, added later on to help it make it more easier to find areas for people to read and expound upon and preaching and things like that. So this uh, keeps things simple. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um <clears throat> So this letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier, hard name. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I didn't say it. And to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I am always thank I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord and your love for all of God's people, and I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith, as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. So right here in this first four, five, uh, excuse me, first seven verses here, you have a general idea. Um, Paul is the author, um, and and uh, and Philemon is the person who is getting the is the recipient of the letter, and and also his um, the sister Aphia and the hard name Archippus, Archippus. Um, and the church that meets in your house. So right now you hear kind of like the idea of who is the the letter originally going to. Um, and then in the next, from verse 4 until 7, he's just basically talking about, he you know, he basically thanks God for uh, Fleeman because, you know, he keeps hearing about his faith in the Lord Jesus and for all of God's people. So it's just a, more of a um, compliment that Paul's giving Philemon because he's a genuine believer and um, things like that. Um, uh, and it basically is kind of like a way of also saying like how um, it's been able to be an encouragement for Paul because obviously with Paul there's been numerous instances where we've had people who he's put a lot of, um, I guess, time into pouring into them only for them to betray him or to run away. So whenever someone who's a genuine believer, um, Paul pours into them and it's like a refreshing um, sort of um, reciprocal kind of like he gets encouragement because this guy is being faithful and he keeps hearing good news and good things about him and things like that. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add about that before you take over the next passage or anything, Robert? Um, I mean, you'd hit the nail on the head. Just the idea that 
the first few verses that you've just covered in the NLT that that kind of paints the picture of what kind of literature we're talking about because this is a very very short personal letter that God chose to inspire by his Holy Spirit so that we would be saved and we'd be pouring over his personal mail for thousands of years and so you know talking about you know I thank my God for everything I hear that you're doing um, he's naming names as if you're supposed to know who they are because he's talking straight to Philemon, this man he has a relationship with. And um, so the two things I get out of it are, uh, at the beginning, are fellowship, relationship, and I would call it the collision of worlds. Um, you see it in almost all of Paul's letters, just the idea of grace and peace to you. You lose it in the English, but those were actually two different greetings. Yeah. Uh, the Romans would say grace to you. And the Jews would say peace to you. And so you have gratia and shalom. It would kind of like be like you visiting a Spanish church that had a mixed congregation. And you got invited up to speak. And the first thing out of your mouth into the mic was hello and hola. That way you could kind of cover both fields. And so he is saying grace and peace from the Roman and the Jewish perspectives to this one man. And he says, I've prayed for you and everything that you've done for the church. Uh, both sides of the church, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the world is coming together. And it starts, you know, thanks to Christ, it starts with Christ. And um, in the body, it starts with you and me. And so he's kind of reminding Philemon that everything he is about to exhort Philemon to do, and we're going to get into that, but it's not something that would be easy for Philemon to do. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of whetting his appetite to say that, you know, you have done so much good for Christ now I'm about to uh, ask you to do one more thing for me, mm -hmm. your brother and your spiritual father, your mentor. And so this whole idea of closeness, it's, it is much more personal than a book like Romans. I mean, if you want deep theology for weeks, mm -hmm. uh, for years, really, you know, dive into that one. But Philemon, it's so short because it's so personal. It's literally a conversation between two human beings on a very, very low level just like two people chatting over a table. Mm -hmm. But that's what I get out of the opening. Mm -hmm. So uh, take the next section there. Okay, next section. Jumping from uh, verse 8 into the body of it. Um, Zach is pre uh, uh, reading from the NLT. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, if you remember us from previous episodes doing that, then uh, you know the, the whole dynamics of the translations. But um, it, mine says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. And I'll cover what he means right there. It's actually a pun. I'm sending him, Onesimus, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bond servant. Some translations say slave, and that was... The very byword I was talking about, we're going to have to dig into the context of that one. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So this is a very packed paragraph, and 
uh, Zach, if your translation says anything in a certain wording that makes you want to add some things to what is being said, mm -hmm. basically what Paul is saying is, um, as an apostle of Christ, I could simply command you to do what I'm about to ask you to do, but I'm asking you to do this as a favor to me out of love. And basically what scholars have understood to be the context of this is a slave called Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon. Philemon was a, was a believer and Onesimus was not. And Onesimus ran away to gain his freedom and while he was gone, he ran into Paul, who was in prison at the time, and through Paul's preaching and teaching, Onesimus became a believer. And so now Paul is doing the awkward reconciliation thing. He is sending the slave back to the slave owner. And this is where the modern reader actually sees Paul as a villain if they allow themselves to derail things out of context. This is in a completely different relationship between slave and slave owner, despite the same similar words, it is not the same dynamic we think of yeah. when we look back on our American history of slavery. Yeah, this isn't this isn't the European form of slavery. Not like, at all. Like modern colonialism slavery. This is this is um, the equivalent of like say for instance, um, you go to work for somebody to work out a debt. You know, it would you would be that person's slave, but it wouldn't be like a long term it would just be you working out that your debt for that person um and various other instances like that but that was really the hub of the roman empire at that time it wasn't by any i mean any means to mean a justification for slavery of all forms or anything like that it was just in that day and time what the people were with and working with because the reality of it was uh, on on then what is this? How do you say it? Omnisius. Namipadupa. Yeah. Uh, the slave Onesimus. Onesimus. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize about that. It's just hard names, you know. But Onesimus, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, he was literally under legal grounds, on, on like underneath the the um, the uh, uh, lordship of um, Philemon. And he ran away. So Philemon actually could have um, taken um, Onesimus to court and had him locked up for failing to pay uh, his uh, what he owed him and, and for the, the services rendered to him. But what Paul was trying to do was he was trying to bridge the gap between the two and have Onesimus go back to Philemon to fulfill his obligation to his um master so to speak but not in the, again not in the sense of um like european master by no means is it like that no um what would what would be a good comparison for slave at this time when paul is writing this the romans in the ancient world understood slavery in a completely different context um it was more in line and uh, if if uh, you disagree with it, Zach, let me know. But I would say it's m in our mind it would be more to, uh, better to understand this as an employee who right. works for board rather than pay. Right. And so you enter an agreement, and a lot of people would enter into agreements in order to pay debts. You know that old cliche that every sitcom plays out is you go out to eat, you can't afford it, and so you pay off your bill by washing the dishes. And so slavery in that ancient world was a way for them, people who owed extreme debts, either to society or to a landowner, 
they that's their way of washing the dishes. They would actually give themselves up to service for a certain amount of time, and then when that time was up, they would be set free. And uh, so basically, it was kind of a, a kind of a loan shark thing. You are in debt, and therefore you will pay this off. And Onesimus apparently got burnt out on trying to pay that debt that he was already owing, and so he escapes, becomes a believer. And now Paul is basically asking Philemon, the, the master, to take the slave back peacefully rather than turning him away or slapping him in the face, throwing him out on the streets. And the reason Paul is turning Onesimus, the slave, back to his home from where he ran, it's not because Paul is trying to condone slavery as we know it. Um, maybe you've heard it said, or maybe you yourself have thought that the scriptures condemn slavery and it, it, as we know, and it's definitely not true. The reason Paul is sending him back home is because the the man Onesimus had a debt to pay to Philemon, the slave owner, and it would be dishonorable for him to cut off what he owes. It's basically Paul basically saying that, uh, a metaphorical way of saying it, like that that last $500 you owe the bank, you better go back and pay that $500. Don't go AWOL and try to go missing for years and years while they hunt you down. You go back, you confess what you did, that you ran for, for it, and then you pay back that last 500 that you owe. And so he's giving two men two commands. Onesimus is being commanded to go back and honor the debt that he was meant to pay, and Philemon is being asked to forgive Onesimus by sliding him, by running out on their agreement, their contract. And so Paul is sending these two, and he's saying that I don't just send him back as a slave. I don't just send him back as your temporary property on paper. He is someone who is part of your household like your dishes and your farm animals for a temporary time until that debt is paid. He's saying I'm not sending him just back as property on paper, but I'm actually sending him back as a brother. And so basically he's trying to appease Philemon by pointing to the gospel. He says, since you and he have both accepted the same Christ, I am asking you, Philemon, as your friend, as your mentor, as a fellow brother in Christ, I'm asking you to embrace Onesimus and forgive him as another brother in Christ. And so this kind of definitely has a paradigm shift and uh, it would be worth it before we end the episode to have a brief discussion about why does the Bible never go out of its way to condemn, condemn slavery if it's wrong. Right. Now, we could go down that route, but for now, suffice it to say that Paul is basically telling Philemon that, you know, if your your commitment to Christ is real, then you are being called to accept Onesimus. And so ba basically he's appealing to Philemon's love for Christ and Christ-given love for fellow humans. Instead of just saying, I want uh, you to do this because I command it or Christ commands it, he's actually trying to make the best appeal. He's trying to appeal to love. But he's asking Philemon, I, I would hope that you choose freely to do this simply because you get it. You know what the gospel is about. You know what the cost was, and you understand everything that you yourself have been forgiven. And so I'm hoping that my preaching sticks and the idea of love your enemies, turn the other cheek, everything that I preached that the Lord himself preached, I'm hoping that that actually applies itself to your life. But, uh, Zach, is there any part of that section that jumps out to you in the NLT? Um, no, uh, I think I think you can hit the nail on the head. I mean, 
again, I, th- I think if we're not careful, we approach Scripture, especially something as sensitive as slavery, we approach our modern concepts of it, like such as the European concept of slavery, to the ancient world, and it's not the same thing. And if we're not careful, um, we can get totally misunderstood, misquoted um, um, as you know, as these ideas, like, you know, like, like Robert was saying, like, this doesn't directly condemn slavery, but in a, in a way, like, um, promotes it to an extent, but it's like, it's more of like honoring your oath to do what you said you would do, not so much, um, like, this is the vehicle of how the world should operate. It's more like, this is the way that you were, uh, you were, how you became a believer, you became a believer through this situation. And now as a believer, you need to honor your word. You need to honor your conduct and you need to go back and you need to fulfill your obligation to this master. Again, reemphasizing the fact that this is not talking about, uh, it's more like indentured servitude, I guess would be the best way to put it. It is a temporary, uh, indentured servitude for a length of time to where the debt was paid and after that debt was paid you are completely free to go about your your life um, and some people chose to stay in that class because they provided food and um, and lodging and things of that nature for the person so that way it was one less thing that they had to worry about because you're talking about in the ancient world, um, food was not abundant as it is today. Um, so it was like it was a way to secure your your um, your livelihood without um, without overextending yourself and trying to figure out okay, you know, trying to to acquire things and and and. Um, go further it could just be you can focus on your basic needs and and live your life and that was the other thing that's kind of um missed in the um especially in the hebrew world um bond servant um actually meant um something even more profound is like um if you chose to become a slave to your master again not european slavery but this was ancient you know, Middle Eastern uh, slavery, you could then become a bond servant. In other words, like after you've worked off your debt, you could choose to remain with the master and then they would add you into the inheritance. So when the master passed away, you would be granted a certain amount of, um, whether it be property or all the things that you've acquired um, and things like that, you actually inherited something from when the master uh, passed away, so to speak. So again, um, and the, how they signified that was by the piercing of an ear. Uh, is that correct, Robert? I think I remember reading that somewhere. Yeah, it was the piercing of an ear. And interestingly enough, uh, the difference between you know servant and a bond servant was the idea that they would in the Old Testament they would actually put a certain piercing in someone's ear. If that slave was so happy in a master's home that they chose to just be a permanent staple of the home instead of paying off a temporary debt, um, which would be unheard of in our own version of slavery, but 
uh, these people could choose to up, upgrade from slaves to bond slaves. And what that, what that also signified a certain puncturing of the ear, which, I mean, it also it should tell us that this is a different form of slavery than what we understand. Because from what we understand of, you know, earlier times, um, the idea that a servant would choose to stay forever if they have the opportunity to have that freedom, mm-hmm. it, it gives you this idea that they have a much different um, stake in life, a much different version of existence as a slave in that culture than what we understand in our more recent history. And so, but yeah, like you say, it signified a puncturing of the ear. Mm-hmm. And so the whole system was different than what we understand it to have been. Right. Yeah. So that's just one of those things that's important to clarify because it is a sense of, especially in the United States, like there's so much controversy around slavery and, and things of that nature as far as like the past and, and American times. And does the Bible actually condone slavery? Does it condemn slavery? And the answer is it condemns the slavery of where you force people to uh, to do what you want and things of that like that nature. But at the same time, there wasn't a certain economic understanding of where you would subject yourself to that. And there are two different things. There are distinct differences. Um, again, not promoting either because, I mean, in, in our society, we are blessed to not have that. But uh, the equivalent for us, our concept of it would be employment. Like you, you agree to become an employee for a corporation slash, you know, company at X amount of dollars a day. Um, and the only difference is for them, it was X amount of time. You know, maybe it was the harvest season or the um, the season where the planting season. So you would agree to work for this person for, you know, food and lodging for the the uh, planting season. And then you'd go off and you'd do something else. And then maybe you find uh, somewhere else later on down the road and you'd hire yourself as a harvester for the harvest season. And so you would subjugate yourself to be a, a slave of a master for that period of time to basically have that way of living for that period as like while you're doing that work that person provided for your food your lodging and your water and clothing and things like that and then when that season was over you paid that debt off or what have you you then went off to a different job Mm -hmm. absolutely and so this is the the situation that uh paul is putting onesimus into as opposed to sending him back onto uh, an American plantation in our minds. Just a whole concept of uh, the relationship is different. And so uh, to carry that same uh, idea that Paul is pushing, uh, verse 17 is when he finally gets to the punch. He's been pushing the idea that Onesimus is a fellow brother with Philemon. He and uh, the two of them are actually on the exact same uh, level at the foot of the cross just the basic dignity of a human made in God's image. And so verse 17, Paul says, So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my, refresh my heart in Christ. 
Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So again, he says a lot in, a, in a, just a few spare verses. Basically, he's, if you ever loved me, if you ever considered me a partner in ministry, if you ever uh, cherished your time with me the way you claimed you did, then pretend that Onesimus is me. It's the same concept Jesus preached when he said, you know, those who feed the hungry, clothe, uh, clothe those who are naked, um, give shelter to those who are exposed. He said, in the same way you did these to those, you would have done it also to me. And so treat me, treat others the way you would treat me if you ran into me on the streets, if you really love me like you say you do. And so Paul is kind of giving him this challenge. It, it's a very friendly challenge, but you can you can feel it. It's there. He's he's basically saying the I will take it as a personal slight if you do not treat Onesimus with compassion. And so he's basically uh, the verse nineteen where Paul takes the pen, and this is actually a major issue because Paul very seldom ever did his own writing. And there's a long, long story behind that. We could do a whole episode on that. But it is possible that uh, Paul may not have been able to write his own letters due to eyeball issues. But he takes the pen and he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. And so he is literally taking it from his usual secretary and writing that next two or, uh, sentence or two in his own handwriting. He says, I swear I'll repay whatever you feel Onesimus owes you because it can be charged to my account. I will put myself behind him. I'll basically put my money and my resources where my mouth is with him. And so, uh, and especially this sucker punch at the end of chapter, uh, chapter, the end of verse 19, I'll repay it. And he's basically to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. And this is basically, he's now saying, it's because of my preaching, it's because of Christ that you're saved, but it's because of my preaching that you heard about Christ. So you literally owe me the very salvation of your soul, Philemon. And if you want to go against me, then you will have uh, basically swindled yourself out of a debt far deeper than the debt that Onesimus ever de dealt and so he's basically saying, if you do not accept him back, then you will have actually been more guilty of running out on your debt than your own slave was. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to be angry, you're going to become the living example of Jesus's parable about the, the man owing money and not forgiving the one who owed him less. And so this is basically this friendly challenge. I mean, you can kind of get the sense that Paul is kind of asking Philemon as a friend but he is not afraid to back up everything that he's preached in order to make sure that this man, Onesimus, who's become a believer, is treated with the dignity of a human being, no matter what his station is in life. And uh, verse 21 is pretty brilliant. Confident of your obedience, I know you're going to do the right thing. I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. And basically he's kind of voluntelling. He's voluntelling Philemon to, to, to go above and beyond. And he says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. And so the thing is, he's saying, if you love me, you will love him. Uh, I owe you your very soul in Christ. Now is the time you pay that debt back off to me personally, Paul. And then at the very end, I mean, he's not afraid to mince his words. He's literally saying, thank you in advance. I just know you're going to do above and beyond what I've asked you to do. 
oh, and by the way, prepare a guest room for me. I would, by God's grace, I would love to be out of prison. And if that's happening, I'm going to come straight and see you. And so the whole thing, it's the guise of friendliness. And I'm not saying he's faking his friendliness. He's just, you. he's appealing to his friendship to save the day for Onesimus. He's basically saying, I would love to come visit you. And he's sincere in that. It's not a veiled threat. It's not, nothing with a double meaning. But you can definitely see the sense that he's giving is, if, I, if God's grace allows me out of prison, I would love to stay at your house and take a direct peek at how you're treating your slave and how he has been since I uh, let, allowed him to leave my presence. And so he's saying, like, there will be follow-up homework. Like, mm-hmm. I'll send you home with this homework, <laughs> and I will check on what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, he, the, the investment Paul is making to make sure that Onesimus is being... Uh, treated and loved and found useful and that's actually what I mentioned before as a pun I said we would get to it later I want to make sure we cover that I don't want that to be thrown out there in the middle of the podcast and never addressed again but uh, he uses a pun on Onesimus's own name the name Onesimus means useful and so this idea of a useful slave someone who is a benefit to all those who rely on him and so um, verses 10 and 11, back up a little bit. He says, I, Paul, appeal to you, Philemon, uh, I, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Basically, my I became his spiritual father. In other words, that's just a way of saying that uh, what, what we've already said. He became a believer because he met me in prison and heard me teach and preach. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed Onesimus. He's indeed useful. He's living up to his name, to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, who is now my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him so that he might serve so that he might serve me on your behalf. So basically I would have loved to have kept him so that he could basically be your hands and feet to me while in prison, but I'm sending him back to you because it's the right thing to do. And then he goes into this whole uh the whole uh, veiled uh, urgency, this this exhortation that if you really loved me, you will treat him the way I anticipate that you will treat him. And so you have this idea that Paul is using this opportunity to literally preach the gospel through his, through actions, through the word picture that he is presenting of this slave going back to the slave owner. And instead of being condemned like you would expect the prodigal son to be, he's going to be embraced like the father in the prodigal son's story. And so he says, if you really believe this gospel, you will paint this out in your life. You're not going to allow your neighbors to see you mistreat this slave because then they'll never listen to you again when you try to bring Jesus up. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the, the important thing to keep in mind here is Philemon had the right to be upset with Onesimus. I mean... He, at least, if nothing else, he fled from his responsibility um, because it's kind of like it goes back to what we were saying. Like, whenever you agreed to become a slave of a person in this day and time, you agreed to X amount of money or however long, whether it be the season or what have you, you agreed to do those things. You agreed to be those things. And... Um, uh, and in this situation, it was um, Onis- uh, Onesimus who ran away, not fulfilling his obligation to what he was supposed to do. 
Um, and so Fleeman could have thrown the book at him. He could have took him to court. He could have took him and said, hey, look, this was a slave. He ran away. Um, and if he did things, you know, maybe he stole something or something. Who knows? Um, we don't we don't have that from the text. But if he it does say if he wronged you in any way, he uh, Paul said he would repay. So if there was some sort of something that he took or stolen or anything like that, um, he had grounds. Uh, Philemon had grounds to take uh, Onesimus to court, but instead he is choosing to take the high road and to bring him back into the fold so that he can then minister to that congregation that is meeting in, uh, in Philemon's house. Um, and it's just an opportunity um, for reconciliation. And that's really, I think, and this is what Robert is saying, is Paul's goal is a reconciliation between a master and a slave. It is not condoning slavery, but it's like this is the situation these people found themselves in, and he's trying to make the best of it so that they both honor the Lord. Like Onesimus honors his word, and the the um, uh, uh, Fleeman honors his um, end of it also, and uh, for showing forgiveness and mercy where he didn't necessarily have to show that forgiveness and mercy. And by doing so, they represent they both represent Christ. Um, in that and that's really what Christians are supposed to do we as believers we're supposed to represent Jesus um, we're supposed to honor our word like if I make a oath to somebody or make a vow or like to my wife it is my responsibility to honor that vow to my wife um, you know and the same with my wife to me you know that's just that's the the dual ship of that uh, agreement that covenant that she and I made in that now and it's a different situation because we're not slaves and master but you get the idea so Philemon had the opportunity to do what was right and he had the opportunity to do what was evil and Paul was charging him to do what was right and honor the Lord with his conduct great stuff great stuff and uh and of course, and this doesn't mean the conversation about it just ends, but to jump through those last couple of verses, because like we said, the letter is very quick. So once he gets this point driven across, he ends it with uh, Philemon pretty quickly. He throws out some names that Philemon is meant to know. Epaphus, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to, greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So it's just like they say, hey. It's kind of like the end of a phone call. Uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. It's just kind of a, a way to encourage him and hang up the phone, and this letter ends. And so in this little glimpse of, you know, a very quick, it probably took Paul's secretary five to ten minutes to write this, and yet we have just this picture of the gospel imprinted in everything that we've said. And also in, you know, the great takeaway that I get, um, is uh, just the idea of human dignity across the board. But before we go down that rabbit hole, is there anything else you'd like to add about the closing or the body or anything based on the NLT? Uh, no, not not off the top of my head. Is there anything you'd like to bring up or? Uh, no, I think you guys have covered it. Okay, um, I think I'm good. Okay, but uh, yeah, a great way to 
land the plane, and I'm not saying this is the last minute of the podcast, but a great way to go down that lane towards landing is now now that we've read Philemon, and again, just 25 verses, we have this idea of human dignity becoming a constant because of a Christian idea. Um, there are a lot of, uh, I would call the mainstream modern ideas that they all hinge on some interpretation of this idea. Mm-hmm. The dignity, dignity of all human beings, the idea that every person has the power to choose, the, pow- the ability to you know, live the life that they would want to do, to ch- become the person that they would like to be. It all hinges on some interpretation of the idea that the human has dignity and that human life has ultimate value. And mainstream culture, by and large, has forgotten the idea that this was a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. It is They are preaching a warped version of Christian teachings to a post-Christian culture mm-hmm. and then saying that Christianity itself is no longer relevant. It's these ideas, the idea that someone rose from the dead. Therefore, since someone has died for the sins of all the world, this proves that the maker of the world values the souls of the world enough to have died for it. Therefore, it must be true when the scripture of the culture he came from says that all human beings are made in the image of this maker who died for them. And so if they are made in his image, if they are truly the apple of his eyes, he said Israel in particular was in the Old Testament, and he came and died for every last one of them so that they do not do not have to be a part of that particular people group in order to be a part of his people now, and it's free of charge, then what does that say about the value of a human soul in the eyes of the God who made the entire universe? And that changed everything. Mm-hmm. So we can go down one big, big question, and some of you may have struggled with it or have maybe asked it yourselves in a spirit of skepticism, but just the idea of if the Bible is really the word of God and not just the word of ancients, if it was not just the product of a bunch of ancient farmers and and kings and chroniclers and priests who had their idea of God, their statues, their rituals, and they just wrote some great ideas wrapped in that fabric. And some many people believe that's exactly what it is. It's no different than just the Jewish Grimm's fairy tales or the Jewish Tao uh, Te Ching. But if it is more than that, then why did God not take the opportunity to uh, directly condemned slavery. I mean, he would have had the opportunity when he founded Israel to make slavery obsolete and illegal forever. Why did he not do that? Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is there are instances in Scripture where Jesus actually does condemn uh, racism. Uh, we don't see it in the Good Samaritan, but the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other the, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were Jewish people who also intermarried with pagans, and they developed their own ideas of Jewish, um, I won't say folklore, but Jewish um, history. So they kind of corrupted uh, Jewish tradition. And that's where whenever the woman at the well says, you know, we say we worship at the mountain, you guys say worship at Jerusalem. And, and Jesus says, well, the truth came from the Jews but I tell you, a time is coming. So, in other words, he's basically affirming that what the Jews taught was true history. This is true, but th- there's more to it than just Judaism. 
you know, in the, in the Old Testament, whenever um, uh, the Israelites came out of the Promised Land or came out of Egypt into the Promised Land, uh, a very interesting thing that you miss, a lot of times people miss, is that Egyptians left with the Israelites whenever they uh, left Egypt and went into the Promised Land. Um, you also have an instance in the Old Testament when Jonah was told to preach to the Ninevites, which was a very pagan, wicked people group. Again, God was like, I want you to go and preach to them. And Jonah ran. And the reason why he ran is he did not want the Ninevites to repent. God was wanting to show mercy to the Ninevites, a whole separate people group beside the Jewish people. And, but the prophet uh, Jonah said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so the whole book of Jonah is Jonah coming to terms with the fact that God cares more about his people. I mean, not his people, but cares more about people, repentance and true believing than he does about a particular people group. It's always been about everybody repenting and believing and whoever repents, whether they're a Samaritan they can repent whether they're uh, um, uh, Ethiopian or uh, American or Anglo-Saxon or all these other different subgroups that have arisen from that time to from that day to this day. If you repent and believe, then you can be saved. That puts everybody, every single person every single people group at the same level. There's no one higher. There's no one lower. We're all equal. We're all equally sinners, and we all need salvation. And that's the whole point that what the, all this is getting at um, is the fact that, you know, did um, God show himself to the Jewish people? Absolutely. They recorded those things historically accurate and all that, but at the same time, he also loves everyone he wants all people all groups to repent and believe because you even see it in the old testament whether it was in the book of um, exodus where the uh, egyptians go out with the israelites or whenever you see um, caleb and joshua go in to uh, spy out the, um, the the promised land the land of canaan and they go into um um uh, do you remember the lady's name? Rahab? Is it Rahab? Uh, yes, Rahab. Rahab's um, uh, brothel. Um, and, and and they make out an agreement. And then later on in, gen in Jesus' genealogy, you see Rahab. And a lot of scholars speculate that that is the actual Rahab, the same Rahab. Um, so you have, again, numerous instances of where God is shown that he is not a, a people group specific, but a, a, a people who repent group specific, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. And um, not to just keep uh, pounding the same concept forever, but one more example. I remember when Jesus preaches in his hometown in Nazareth, he's speaking in the synagogue. And if, if you've read the story, um, you know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm about to spoil it to death, but that's fine. That's It's scripture. You want it spoiled so that you know it. But... Uh, Jesus preaches in Nazareth, and one of the things he does is he actually, uh, in a low-key way, he kind of condemns the racism of the people at hand because 
at the time it was simple to see and now this is a human nature thing we do this all across the board because I am part of my group my country my political party because I'm a part of my little club um, be, um, my friend group we are more we are superior to them and so there's a part of it that's just human nature but a lot of people in the Jewish nation most of the people in the Jewish nation were seeing themselves that way under Rome at Jesus lifetime they said since we are the covenant people of God we are the righteous persecuted underneath the wicked Romans and those Gentiles just all non-Jews are not a part of this and so Jesus in his sermon he actually lays out it wasn't to only Jews that the God of the scriptures came his father went to some people groups that uh, some individuals that scripture points out are actually part of the nations the Gentiles the non-Jewish people and it's one of the things that offended the people so much. He's basically kind of trying to say, don't put too much stock in your own ethnical Jewishness. It will not save you in the eyes of a holy God who sees every color, every language, every culture completely the same and equal because you are all sinners in his eyes. And so this idea that um, all, are, all are bowed down by the doctrine of sin, the idea that humans, all humans, or innately wicked bends the knee to say that human nature is not that phenomenal in and of itself it is it's capable of incredible things because of the image of God but all are sinners but at the same time and I think I used this very 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 phrase on this episode a few minutes ago but uh, all the the ground is level at the foot of the cross and you'll hear preachers say that again and again until it, it becomes cliche but what it's literally saying is that all cultures are welcome and have equal value in light of the Christian worldview when it's fully understood. What the God of the universe did in creating humankind and what he did in stooping down to become a human being and die on a cross for us all, regardless of what our ethnic background might be, regardless of what part or corner of the world or our personal individual backgrounds might be, he came and died for us all, and it is equally free and equally as effective for every last one of us. But this is where you see the seed slowly starting to form into the plant. The idea that, you know, and Zach, uh, he, he's, he's tracking exactly where I was going to track. We're two, two great minds thinking alike right here. We're, <laughs> <laughs> the idea that, you know, if God had condemned slavery... Yes, it might be easier for Christians to point to the verse where God says, you shall not have slaves. You shall not have uh, humans as property. You shall you know, do this about the value of women. You shall do this about the value of children. But all these things have come about, I would argue, because of the seed that was planted in the Christian worldview to say that all human beings are equal. And then you started seeing that same borderline vanilla principle being applied to all these different colors of life and all these different corners of need and so if God and I'll play this little game as devil's advocate let's say for the sake of argument that Yahweh came to Moses gave the commands and one of them there are 316 commands in the Old Testament let's say that one of those somewhere God said you shall not have slavery anymore that I know for a fact that that would not have gotten rid of slavery in Israel. And the reason I say I, I know that for a fact is because they didn't keep any of the other commandments. Yeah. I mean, even the yeah. simplest ones to obey, the whole rest of the Old Testament is a history of 
God tr- constantly condemning Israel because they're breaking every single law in the first five books uh, in some kind, some way, in act or in deed or uh, retraction of something that they should be doing or even in the mentality and the attitudes of their own hearts and minds, they're constantly breaking everything. And so one thing that finally convinced me personally that this book had more to it than myth was if you were a nation and you were going to write your own holy book, you had full freedom you were sitting down at the typewriter, you could put anything in there. This is your history, American history. Now, textbooks for America, they tend to try to make founding fathers, they try to make the American heroes look as good as possible. And there's some merit in that to applaud the things that they did that were right. But there are a lot of warts and scabs on a lot of human beings in the past because, again, we're all sinners that many textbooks gloss over. So apply that idea to Scripture, the Jewish Bible. If you were going to write your own history from scratch, you could say anything. You could t- get, you could give any kind of deity as the hero. You could put forth any number of people as the historical figures. You could explain why your group is in the Middle East in any way you want to. Why in the world would you make yourself look so bad from beginning to end? Why would you make every so-called hero in the story full of warts that your own law condemns? Why would you set up rules and then have your heroes constantly break them, constantly be demeaned by them? Yeah. And, I mean, it's just, and the real hero of the story is constantly having to warn them, constantly having to judge them, push them uh, towards a judgment, constantly having to ban them, constantly having to exile them, constantly having to cut them down, constantly having to put them through war, through exile, through famine, through plague, through judgment of li- the literal touch of angels of death just to try to get them to obey what was written in the beginning of the thing. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that to yourself? And so all that to say, if God had said, you shall not have slaves, not a single one of them would not a single one of the people of Israel would have fully, completely, permanently banned slavery in Israel. It would just wouldn't have been obeyed. God knew that there would still be slaves in this world. So what he had to do was he had to attack the heart. He had to go for the law of love like Paul did. Paul literally says in Philemon, I could command you as an apostle, but since we are friends, I'm going to ask you as a friend to see Onesimus as you would see me. To see a piece of me in Onesimus so that it hits you between the eyes that we are who we are all the same because of who made us and who saved us. Mm -hmm. And this is where you see the seed starting to be planted. This is where you see a culture slowly getting away from racism, slavery, slowly getting away from the demeaning uh, treatment of women and of children and the lame and the mentally handicapped and all those who've been sidelined for so long under other other worldviews simply because it's a whole different way, a whole different paradigm of looking at human nature across the board. And when you put that in there, like like dropping a bit of dye in water and watching it slowly dilute and spread, when you drop that idea among a group of people and leave it to them underneath the influence of the Holy Spirit and a Christianized society, not all of them saved, but a Christianized society where these ideas are permeating, you start to have people look around and go, wait, this isn't applied here. This isn't applied there. And then you see people of their own accord taking their own initiative to make actual change rather than a command that constantly beats against the wind and never gets heated. Mm-hmm. 
And God is way too smart to have actually wasted his breath on a command that he knew would not have been obeyed. And so the scripture says, since you have slaves, and I know you're not going to get rid of them anytime soon, treat them with dignity. And there are so many different details to those laws in the Old Testament. Since women are seen as property and you're just going to keep seeing them as property, treat them with dignity. Here's what it looks like. And slowly over time, on the other side of the cross, looking back on it, that's when we see people actually taking genuine steps towards not just treating them with more dignity and respect, but genuinely making sure that their human dignity is treated to the full in all the ways that it can be applied to, as long as it's all within the Lordship of Christ. And so you have the idea that God very stealthily, very very brilliantly, not only saved souls, but thanks to saving souls within the world, his influence in the world started to change it for the better. So that when you look at the world we have now, as opposed to ancient Israel, when Paul wrote Philemon, the two worlds are almost unrecognizable because Christ's influence has completely radicalized the way we see ourselves and the world we live in. And yet we, we think it's a coincidence that this one man, this one Middle Eastern preacher, could have so much catastrophic influence on the world he absolutely decimated the world we lived in for the better and yet we think he was just human yeah it it blows me away yeah um and one thing that always comes to my mind when we think about stuff like that is you know i mean jesus i mean openly speaks to and talks to women numerous times in scripture and the, the actually the very first people who come across the resurrection are women so again it's highlighting women, you know. I mean, if you were in this day and time, I mean, this could love get going into a little bit of a side side uh, note here. But if you were um, going to make up a religion in that place and time, and this was make believe, it wasn't actually legit. This didn't actually. You would not have women go to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. You would have the apostles. You'd have the people who uh, were the, the Jesus's actual disciples because they were the ones that end up coming back and leading the movement. But it shows that they're scared and terrified, and actually the women were the ones that honored the Lord with the um, the desire to go back to the, his uh, tomb to properly bury him and show honor to him, even though. He was crucified as an enemy, and they were the first ones that were honored with seeing the resurrection. So it's like again, you just see, like like Robert said, slowly this idea that women have value, and people of other races like the Good Samaritan, you know, like the uh, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, all these different people um, um, are seen as equal. And it, it's like it starts small, but then it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows into the point where we actually have a culture and society that we have now that even though we're trying to, not us as a people, but like Western society um, is trying to remove God and yet still adhere to these values and these morals that are found in Christendom, yeah. that are found in Christianity. And if you kill God, you kill the morals that support these good things. Um, that's just the reality of what will happen. When you eliminate God, quote-unquote, from the world, 
then you then illuminate or, or destroy the the um, uh, ability to support the um, the ideas that we ad- adhere to, um, such as like all life being equal, all people being equal. Well, if you don't have a Christian worldview, if you have an evolutionary atheistic worldview, then humanity is subjective and humanity can fluctuate depending on the environment it can change it isn't it isn't station it isn't um what it is it's it's something that can change depending on the culture society what have you all these other factors can change humanity and then it becomes less than humanity and or greater than humanity and then you look at like what are some instances that show a more evolved society versus a less evolved society. And again, then you start dissecting people and you start putting people in groups of lesser and greater, you know, depending on, and, and then next thing you know, you have legitimate racism, whereas Christianity is trying to eliminate racism. And it isn't to say that there's not people who aren't racist because and they're christian but they they are but they're like missing the whole point of the bible (laughs) they're missing the whole point of christianity god came to save us all sinners every one of us white black uh yellow red green whatever out there all of us if we're a human being then we are all sinners in need of saving and that is the point of the gospel that is the point that god created adam and eve and from Adam and Eve, all the races came into being. And because of that, we can all look at them as brothers and sisters. Even if we don't look exactly the same, we're still brothers and sisters. And we can treat each other with dignity because we are made in the image of God. Those people who look different from us are made in the image of God also. And therefore, we should show them dignity and respect. And evolutionary thought doesn't promote that. So, yeah. Good stuff. And so, um, to truly land the plane, now I'm saying there is a minute left. (laughs) I think we've said all there is to say at the time for Philemon, but you can never exhaust it. So never stop, even though it's short, never stop digging deeper into the ramifications of Philemon and everything we've talked about in this episode. But just to land the plane, the idea that whoever you are out there, you don't ever have to feel lost. You don't ever have to feel unseen because the God of the universe considers you of absolute value the same way he sees every single one of the people on this planet with absolute value. And that's in light of your status as a created being of his and in light of the fact that Christ died for you. And if you don't know him, after listening to this, I would absolutely encourage you to do that. The same God that put Onesimus on the same plane as his master and turn the roman world upside down starting with one conversation over a tiny letter that probably covered half a piece of paper he would transform an entire empire and the entire world we live in now and he sees you with the same value and he died for you on a cross he gave literally everything and we see that once again as in all of scripture he we see it once again reflected in this tiny little personal letter of paul's to philemon all right. Well, thank you, Zach and Robert. That was, I personally, like I've read Philemon, but I've never really done that kind of a deep dive. So I got so much out of that just listening to the two of you. So 
that was that was incredibly beneficial even you know for me so uh to all of our listeners out there um that's you know i really hope you guys got out of it um as much as i did but uh yeah, uh, we will definitely be back on the next episode. Uh, we're going to kind of plan out um, kind of internally our next uh, few episodes. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, we'll be with you next time. And we look forward to a brand new year uh, of podcasting. So thank you all. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs>